So we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Alicia. And I'm Lauren. And we are very fortunate today to be joined by a very special guest. We have with us multi-award winning author, Hannah Kent. Hi guys. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So Hannah, for those who don't know, is an Adelaide writer, yay, yeah, local, yeah, local <laughs> hometown girl, whose first novel, the international bestseller Burial Rights, has been translated into 30 languages and was shortlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction and the Guardian First Book Award, among a bunch of other awards. <laughs> and her second novel, The Good People, was published in 2016 and has been shortlisted for a bevy of awards as well. And Hannah is also the co-founder and publishing director of the Australian liter- Literary Public Kill Your Darlings. So, yeah. welcome. Welcome. Thanks, How are you guys. today? Yeah, really good. Good. Excited to be here. Yeah. <laughs> very, very excited to have you. <laughs> Shall we just crack straight into it then? Yeah, let's do yeah. it. So, your first novel, Burial Rights, was based on the true story of the last woman to be executed in mm-hmm. Iceland, Agnes Magnusdottir. Is that Excellent correct? Excellent pronunciation. Yes, yeah, good. Well done. <laughs> Not going to manage the other characters' names so well, I imagine, <laughs> but maybe you can. Sure. <laughs> and your second novel, The Good People, takes place in Ireland, mm-hmm. delves into a bit of Irish folklore and superstition, also inspired by a true crime involving yes. three women this time. Yes. So these, so there's four, four kind of female characters who we can label, I think, deviant that yeah. in the way that we use that term, yeah. which, which I think our listeners probably know <laughs> by now. So I kind of want to talk about Agnes first. Yeah, of course. Because she's your first... Yes. Your first My deviant. first deviant woman. <laughs> I was going to say your first love, but, you know, also deviant woman as well. Possibly love, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, love, yeah, hate. fictional love. Yeah. yeah. So she was a real woman, and you researched her extensively, including yes. travelling to Iceland and yeah. everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of a weird sort of story because I was interested in her long before I ever, you know, had decided to research her life Mm. and find out more because I encountered her sort of as a local legend I was living in Iceland um, as an exchange student I lived very close to this sort of extraordinary landscape which was sort of filled with hillocks and one time driving through there I asked you know very ignorantly if there were Viking burial mounds (laughs) it reveals my understanding of Nordic history at the time and um, the people I was with corrected me and said no 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 they were caused by an avalanche it's just this bizarre sort of landscape but they said something significant did happen here they pointed to three hills which are called Thristapa and said that was the site of Iceland's last execution. And, you know, like anyone, I was incredibly curious and asked them, you know, who had died and Mm. what had happened, what were they killed for. I found out that two people had been executed by Broadaxe in 1830, and one of those, the last one, was a woman called Agnes Magnus Dottir, who ended up being the very last person executed in that country. And so it was the last person, not just the last woman? The last person. In 1830? That's so early. It is. I don't think the death penalty was actually abolished until 
you know, quite a bit later, almost 100 years later. But, you know, historically speaking, a lot of people, because Iceland was under Danish rule, was sent to Denmark and executed oh, there in Copenhagen. Okay. <laughs> this okay. is quite a unique case anyway. But also crime is incredibly low um, and yeah. murders particularly. Even to this mm. day, if a murder occurs in Iceland, it's sort of front page news for yeah. a week or more. So, so it's such a small population. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So this was a very big local event and it's still sort of, people still talk about it. Over yeah. There. yeah. So... I want to start because I do. We do want to talk about that, the research and and how yeah. you came to Agnes and how you told her story. But I also just want to start by thinking about the character of Agnes. And yeah. I don't know. Do you think it's important to distinguish between historical Agnes and your Agnes? I, suppose? I think it is, <laughs> and I really struggle to do it. And I often talk about them as though they are one and the same. So I'll refer to the historical, you know, the actual historical figure of Agnes. But then I sort of conflate her yeah. all the time with my character and it's it's dangerous yeah and it's it's good when people pick you know pull me up on it and I'm sometimes when I was in Iceland for instance I had to be really careful to make sure that I was referring to fictional yes. Agnes. yeah yeah but you know I think one of the reasons why I confuse the two all the time is because I never really considered my portrayal of her as entirely fictional yes so, <laughs> you know which is perhaps not the greatest thing to do but I, I can't help it yeah. yeah well so she is so for those who don't know well we've kind of already covered the basics that yeah. Agnes is I guess that in the premise of the book is that she is sent to the farm the family to live with them while she's awaiting her execution yes. because she's been convicted along with her co-conspirators now is it Friedrich yep Friedrich Friedrich, Friedrich. Friedrich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a mouthful. and Sigur yep of murdering Nathan Nathan yep Nathan Nathan <laughs> Kettleson and Pieter. Pieter. We can I say like, Peter. We can anglicise it. Peter. <laughs> I'm enjoying I left, it. I left all of this for Lauren to do. I was like, Lauren, can, she can ask all these questions where she has to try and say all these Icelandic names. That's your job. And so as I said, she's said to live with the family of, now, here we go again. It seems like it should be simple, but is it Jon? Yep, Jon. Jon? Yep. Uh, and he's the district officer and his family. Um, now, she's a farmhand, mm -hmm. like that kind of all-around sort of servant yep. role. But she's also a very intelligent woman. Mm -hmm. So just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about who she is? Yeah. So the character of Agnes, differentiating between <laughs> yeah, everyone, yes. is someone who, as you say, she's... When the novel opens, she's already been convicted of murder and that sentencing has been upheld in the various sort of tribunals that were held, I'm sorry, the various courts. So the government of, um, in Denmark has agreed that, yes, her, her execution must stand, she will be put to death, but the date hasn't been set. So while she's waiting for this date to be put in place, because Iceland has no jails at the time, there was one in Reykjavik, historically speaking, but nothing in the north, mm. she's essentially billeted out with a family, with a local sort of a, a small, I don't know, he's not... He's like a local authority, but doesn't have a great deal of power, but still sort of an elder in the community. Mm. So she's sent to live with him and his family. And they're remunerated for holding her essentially in custody, but she also has to pay her way. And obviously she's not, you know, imprisoned because Iceland too, there's not much point of, you know, in imprisoning someone because where are you going to run to? Yeah. There's yeah. nowhere to go. Yeah. You're going to face <laughs> those central wastes yeah, where exactly. you are going to die. Exactly, yeah. right. So she's sort of in this weird position where at this time in 1830s Iceland, people lived in turf houses and you essentially lived in one main room within this turf house, which was called a Bathstofa. So this is incredibly confined close quarters with this family. And what I wanted to do in writing the novel was explore the ways in which this family, who perceive Agnes originally as the rest of the community does, as this murderess, as this deviant woman, mm. as an evil woman, 
and how inevitably as the time passes and they're forced they're forced to see her as a human and so in doing so explore what I perceive to be the ambiguity of this character essentially her goodness but her you know bad behavior but also her humanity and the way in which her choices were necessarily influenced by the sort of broader socio-cultural political context yeah. in her life. Mm. Um, so that's really sort of the opening of the story. And another significant element is that Agnes is attended by a priest who ostensibly is there to, you know, get her to confess, to prepare her for her death, to make her sort of, I don't know, going to the kind of acts willingly. Yeah. Um, and, of course, their relationship changes. And this is very much based on the nature of the relationship between the real historical Agnes and the real priest. Mm. They ended up having something much more akin to a friendship. Mm. And she did confide in him. And and so it's exploring, I guess, also his his own relationship with his faith and his relationship to the authorities that he's supposed to be serving by being a priest in this sort of environment and instead looking at the ways in which something much more real emerges between them. Mm. On that as well, that kind of emergence of those real relationships between these characters, another interesting sort of dynamic that there is in the house as well is with the other women who Mm. also live in the house. So we've got Margaret and her two daughters as well. So that kind of becomes quite a complicated relationship with Mm -hmm. those characters who perhaps start to perceive her as maybe more innocent, those characters who do condemn her and believe in her wickedness, in Mm -hmm. her deviancy. Also in thinking about that sort of isolation, that world in which these women live, do you think that there is some sort of necessity to that dynamic that perhaps some women did feel that need to kind of bond closer together because of the the dangers, I suppose, that are all pervading for women in these kind of situations and how those sort of different dynamics develop between those Mm. women? I wouldn't say that they bond in the book because, uh, you know, they're commonly held womanhood. I think, if anything, particularly the mother in the book, she's a real counterpart to Agnes because she, at this time in Iceland, women actually held a great deal of power compared to lots of other parts of Europe and Scandinavia and Nordic countries. They were allowed to hold property. They could be sort of quite independent, comparatively Mm. speaking. They had a lot of sway, and this is, you know, historically true since medieval times, and we can see that in the sagas. You know, women feature quite, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, a great deal. And so Margaret is someone who has essentially, even though her husband is the district officer, she is the matriarch of that family. Mm. She has a lot of power. People respect her within the community. Um, She also fulfills a lot of the socially accepted roles for women. You know, Mm. she's a farmer's wife. She's a mother. She's a, a mistress to the other farmhands and servants which work there and Agnes on the other hand is not that at all she's not a mother she has no kinship ties whatsoever she's completely isolated because she was born to she was born out of wedlock Mm. and her mother abandoned her when she was five years old and all these facts are true that's based on the sort of biological story of this woman and she also cannot hold land because she's not married this was an actual sort of law in place at those times Mm. she's essentially a pauper so While I think those differences between them initially mean that they find it quite difficult to relate to one another, but I think for me as a writer it was interesting to examine that relationship Mm. and to show that had Agnes's external circumstances been different, she might well have been exactly in Margaret's position because they're not so dissimilar in temperament. Mm, They're both quite ambitious, they're both very stubborn, they're willful women, but it's just that one had you know, I guess slightly better circumstances, had more support, had a family around her, was able to sort of attain that level of independence that Agnes so craves in her life and which led her to make some very poor decisions. Mm. And do you think that 
maybe that kind of element of them actually really kind of being quite similar mm. is I think also kind of reflected in the two daughters. Yeah. The two daughters, um, Loga and Stina. Yeah, Loga and Stina. Loga and Stina. They have very different reactions yes. to Agnes as well. And I suppose in some ways they kind of both share the mm. similarities with Agnes in being more willful, headstrong, like intelligent. Yeah. But also perhaps perceiving some of the ways that that maybe does subvert some expectations of what gender means and so therefore uh, what, you know, being yeah. a woman, ideal woman means. And so then also kind of jealousies arise perhaps around the way that the relationships in the house are formed. That's true. I think both sisters, they're very different and their difference is largely drawn from a, a historical record I found. There used to be this thing called the Salna Registro, or the Register of Souls, which was essentially an early census. The mm. priest, the local priest would go around and he would write down um, the head of the family at the farm and everyone residing there, their age, what their relationship was to the head of the household, their level of literacy and also just a few comments on their character. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I found the entry for basically the at the time when Agnes was living with this family and obviously was incredibly interested in, in her character report, which was simply one word, and it was blundath, which means mixed. Mixed? Oh, mixed. oh my god! But you can imagine, I just like wrote that in my notebook. So mean? many exclamation marks. Um, but then when I looked at the sisters, the elder one was described as, you know, she's good, she's, you know, literate, she's she's fine, you know. But the younger sister, he'd written Fraubeit next to it, and the sort of translation is the equivalent of him being like, she's awesome. This <laughs> Oh and I was like, well, that's really interesting. You know, that's an interesting dynamic. That I is. have a younger sister and we're very different. And so I was like, well, that's something that's kind of too rich to not yeah. explore. But I wanted to also look at the ways in which both sisters kind of use Agnes as a way to kind of create their own identity. So, for instance, the mm -hmm. younger sister, the one who was Frau White, yeah. um, she looks to Agnes as an example of what she is not. She wants to be part of the community. It's important for her to maintain social status. And towards the end of the novel, it's not really giving anything away to say it's sort of revealed that her anxieties are that her... Her living with Agnes is going to limit her own opportunities for marriage. Yes. It's going to reflect badly yeah. on her. Yeah. And so she it's necessary for her to maintain that distance from Agnes and not to empathise with her because mm. if she does, she's afraid that people should be tarnished with the same yeah. brush yeah. and will consequently miss out on the same opportunities that Agnes did. With Stena, she's already a little different. You know, she's not, she, she finds it quite difficult to meet the expectations of a young woman in Iceland. She's slightly eccentric, she's a bit introverted, and she looks to Agnes's difference as a way to validate her own. Yes. yes. And we have passages of Agnes recognizing that and distancing herself from Stena, saying, You, you can't do this. You know, yeah. you, you are not like I am. I've had a lot more, I've had to, I've had a lot more challenges. I'm much more resilient. You're looking to me as sort of as, as a way to sort of validate your mm. own insecurities, I suppose. Yeah. And um, so it was more just about looking at using the sisters to examine ways in which they're trying to negotiate space for themselves and validity within that community in relation to Agnes and what they perceive her to be. Yeah. I guess the intensities of the relationships in the house are made even more extreme by the extremities of the circumstances in yep. which they're in. It's very isolated community, mm -hmm. very harsh conditions. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that also amplifies the danger that yep. exists in the world. And though, I don't know, so something I find myself thinking about a lot here is the way that relationships are negotiated as a, a mechanism for survival as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. And I think we see quite a, a couple of instances um, when Agnes is not allowed in the house mm -hmm. and is forced to sleep outside, yeah. which I suppose is a potential death sentence. Yeah. And 
those kinds of issues, you're like, how would a woman like Agnes, and I suppose mm. really thinking about the characters of character of Agnes herself, have to maintain and regulate the relationships in her life? Mm-hmm. Just and this comes into issues of, you know, women being seen as being manipulative yep. and using their sexuality as a kind of currency to mm-hmm. provide for their own survival. Yeah. So do you think that the environment has a lot of an impact on the way that some of those relationships develop? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the sort of sociocultural aspects of it, but the environment and the, you know, Iceland itself is incredibly important. The weather is so important yeah. in the lives of these people. In the circumstance or the situation that you describe, the occasion where Agnes is to sort of give a little bit of context it comes in sort of flashback form where mm-hmm. Agnes is remembering a fight that she had with her with Natan the man who she's accused of having murdered um she was his farmhand I suppose and they also had a relationship of, of sorts and they essentially have a falling out and she's locked out of the house by him she's basically thrown out mm. and you know this is not an unusual thing in the history of human relationships mm, yeah. you get thrown out of the house all the time Definitely. but when it's in the middle of the winter yeah yes. in Iceland <laughs> and you're living on a very remote peninsula yeah. and you have no light you're not dressed adequately you have no means of transport what are you going to yeah. do suddenly mm-hmm. that is you know a real life and death situation and similarly even the the families who are much better off than Agnes and you know have resources and that they are part of the community they you know have a fellowship with other people there they have relations all of every single person in this book is made vulnerable through yeah. whether mm-hmm. you know they have a bad harvest or suddenly people starve to death this is the time when people ate their shoe leather for oh. they nothing else to eat wow um, and there's a really interesting story that I found out after I wrote the book, the family of Friedrich Sigerson, the other man who was the other person who was executed, the winter after he was executed, that family was sort of, I don't know, kind of admonished, I suppose, by the community and no one really sort of spoke to them and mm. no one visited them. So they were sort of outcasts, just temporarily speaking. However, that winter, the fire went out and they had no means of generating more fire and they nearly all froze to death because oh, no one was visiting them. Oh my gosh. So this is the sort of place where these things happen. Yeah. So, and that's something, again, that I wanted to explore by having, yeah. by f- having the focus of the novel on this time that Agnes spends with the family mm. is that as much as they don't have a choice in looking after her, they also come to need her. She's someone who yeah. assists with the harvest. Mm. She has some knowledge of herbal knowledge, which she learned from Natan, which she then applies. And, yeah, to basically look at at them all as vulnerable even even the district commissioner and because that speaks to that sort of necessity of kinship Mm. and that necessity of having to rely on who is in the community yeah in those conditions where yes as you say it's Mm -hmm. your life is on the line yeah because getting put out of the house it's not like you can walk to the neighbors Mm -hmm. and just knock on the door and be like can i come come in for the night with (laughs) you guys because then who knows where the next neighbor lives you know but also i think thinking about those sorts of different relationships as as well agnes herself i mean she grew up moving from farm to farm Mm -hmm. um, because her mother kind of went through the same thing as well so i guess we were sort of wondering as well about that kind of this gendered sort of perhaps not violence so much but Mm -hmm. but these gendered cycles that sort of are perpetuated Mm -hmm. and because as you said, because of her mother's position, it then reflects on her, yeah. which then, of course, so it is this cycle that goes on yeah. and on and on. But, I mean, is there any way that any way out for her? You know, would there have been any way out for her mm-hmm. otherwise? It's an interesting, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. There's um, So 
I think it's worth stating up front that being a farmhand was not an unusual situation. So even children of quite established families, it was very common for them to be essentially fostered in, yeah. into other families and for them to work. Not everyone went to work as early as someone as Agnes did, who probably would have started working quite seriously from the age of six mm. um, and would have been looking at only doing that unless she had earned enough money or met someone who had enough money for them to purchase a bit of land or at least sort of a tenancy and then, then they would have been permitted to marry. And then mm. she would have been mistress of her own home. So this is something that did happen and people, mm. you know, that was something that she was hoping for, yeah. sort of a rise in station. And I think that informs her relationship with Natan, who already has a farm of his own. You know, if she were to marry him, for instance, then she would be, she would finally have that independence. Yeah. yeah. So rather than sort of lumping everyone who was a farmhand into the same, into the same category, I think this is where the importance of those kinship networks comes yes. in. Yeah. Because this is a time when everyone knows everyone. If you have a family who's respected or who has lots of connections you're going to get a good placement and you're probably going to be Mm. left alone there you're going to be treated really well if you're on your own you have no one checking in on you you don't have a strong network essentially particularly as a woman you're you have to stay at this place people could not just swap employment at any time. There were flitting days in February. That was the only time it was legal for you to change abode or to change work. And you needed a good reference often. But at the very least, you were stuck at the place where where you were working unless... You know, and if you got turfed out, where do you go? No one's going yeah. to take you on. And so, when it comes to that lack of kinship networks, that lack of support, I think that it then becomes slightly more acute for women who were poor, because, say, for instance, that you and this did happen. Not everywhere; it wasn't necessarily commonplace. But say that you were sexually abused by the farmer that you're working for. What do you do? Yeah, you know, you can't go anywhere. You have to stay there. And often, people talk about their lives being made miserable, not necessarily by the farmers, because of, of course, there have a lot of consensual affairs as well. Yeah. with the other people working there but by the often the mistress of the farm she'd give you all the shit work and this yeah. is what tra- people translate it as you know skit you know? yeah. <laughs> so, um so you know you kind of and then if you were pregnant and this is the situation that befalls agnes's mother she falls pregnant you don't know whether the relationship was consensual or whether there was yeah. you know it was rape but she falls pregnant and suddenly she's there looking she gets booted out of the house of course the farm mm. woman doesn't want her there with her bastard child but then who wants to hire a woman mm, with yeah with the child that they have to feed who's not going to be able to work when everyone like we said already is so vulnerable yeah and poor you know yeah. there's not really a class system here the difference really lies between who has family and who mm. has tendency and who doesn't that's it really the only station above that is tends to be sort of danish merchants and the people working for the danish government like the judge the district commissioner yeah. the yeah. so that's where you start to see the way in which people are trapped it's not necessarily yeah. gender it's not necessarily poverty it's often at the places where they intersect yeah. A lot of these ideas lead me into thinking about The Good People, then, Mm. your second novel, and definitely some resonances in themes there. And so The Good People does pick up on some of those themes in burial rights. It deals with those issues of isolated communities, of kinship, themes of justice and injustice Mm -hmm. as well, uh, but takes place in a similar period of time. So it's set across 1825, 1826. I don't know. Is that right? I'm saying that. I'm like, yeah. You should know that. Early 19th century, I know. I got got very little sleep last night with a crying child, so forgive me if I forget some of the details. No, you're right. Well, I can definitely tell you that's when it takes (laughs) place. So just so you know, that's when your own novel takes place. But it's in Ireland this time, Mm. and this novel is much more the story of of three different women who are all sort of 
I guess, deviant in different ways. I, mm. I think we can fit them into those categories. And in different ways, they also live on the edges of their own societies mm-hmm. as well. So we've got Nora, and she she really is a fairly respectable woman yes. to begin with and has a, a fairly sort of standard position in the society and the community, the valley community in which she lives, until tragedy after tragedy befalls her, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's left alone to look after her grandson. But for a lot of time, Michal, the grandson, mm-hmm. He can't speak, um, he can't walk, and um, Nora really begins on her own to struggle to look after this child. Mm -hmm. So she brings in a young girl named Mary to help, and Mary herself is also uh, a character that sits on the outside of the society as well because she's brought in as a farmhand again, Mm -hmm. sort of, as help uh, from another community altogether. But then also we've got a third character too, um, who's Nance, and she's sort of the local healer woman. Mm -hmm. And uh, she has the knowledge of sort of the fairy fairy folk, Mm -hmm. the good people of the story. And when uh, questions start to arise about the grandson, who I'm just going to call Michael for the sake of not butchering any Gaelic, (laughs) um, (laughs) about the possibility of him being a changeling Mm -hmm. uh, from the fairies, then Nance, the local healer, is sort of brought in to put the fairy out of him, Mm -hmm. basically, is is the wonderful terminology that's used. So this is the world that these three women operate in. And so thinking about Mary, as I said, she's perhaps the biggest outsider to this community. So can you tell us a little bit about Mary? I mean, she's she's a very young girl and, uh, again, brought in as help. So this story is also based on real events. Mm -hmm. So girls like Mary... Did exist, you know. Mm-hmm. This was the world they worked in. How was the world for for women or girls, I should say, like Mary? You know, how did they function in different societies and communities that they kind of basically were thrust into? Yeah, um, Mary in the novel is only fourteen years old. She's so she's very young, although she's essentially treated as an adult. She comes from a poor family, and they have a, a lot of children. And because they're poor, as soon as they're old enough, the children are put to work. I um, actually didn't know any of this about the farmhands and the hired help in Ireland. It wasn't until I had essentially was about to go home. I was on a research trip in Ireland and I had encountered these newspaper articles which described these three women involved in these tragic events and one of them was just described as a servant maid, Mary Clifford. And then I'd been invited to the private library of a, of a museum in the south of Ireland in Killarney and I was doing some reading about the times, just sort of general settings, background information, all that sort of stuff. And I had the wonderful good fortune of meeting two academics who were also using the library. And, you know, they were very friendly men and we started chatting away. I said, oh, what are you researching? And I said, oh, look, I'm looking into fairy folklore and this incredible true story which happened. And, um, you know, these are the characters and one of them was a servant maid. And they looked at each other and they said, oh, we researched the hired help. That's our area oh, of research. wow. <laughs> and so they, I started telling them what I knew or what I had found out about Mary Clifford, which was very little, just that she was a servant essentially who I didn't know where she came from. I knew the circumstances that she had perhaps played in these events without sort of, you know, giving away any spoilers. Mm. And they were the people who said, well, she would have been really young. She would have been a girl, basically. Mm. So often, you know, sometimes you might have up to 16, but Sometimes children as young as sort of seven years old were hired <laughs> out. And they said they, it was fascinating because they were able to tell me stories and accounts of people who were hired by families, not much you know better off than their own were, yeah. but they formed incredible friendships and sometimes they were almost foster children of mm. that family. And, of course, lots of other stories as well were particularly girls were hired out and never seen again. Oh, and no one knew what happened horrible. to them. So they were able to give me this incredible overview of this 
you know, fascinating thing, which used to, which was, you know, part of early 19th century Ireland, um, particularly in sort of the peasant classes, as mm. they're called. So a lot of that, the information that they gave me informed my representation of Mary as someone who is made incredibly vulnerable by her age and yeah. her gender, her separation from her family, but also, you know, who is someone who is to some degree independent and has a has a means of income has a means of supporting her family mm. and takes a lot of pride in that and so that that informed my characterization of her and then the rest of it was just really introducing her as like you say an outsider mm. to this to this valley where all sorts of things are going on and so the reader naturally i think aligns themselves with mary mm. because they too have share the same questions that she has yeah do you think that there's a lot of kind of resonances between mary and agnes no, I, I don't actually. No one's ever asked me that before. Oh. Um, no, I suppose, you know, obviously they're both farm hands, but Mary does have a family. Yeah. So, and she... I kind of want to say that she returns to them. It's, it's not necessarily giving away too much of the actual plot, but she does go... She's got a family to go back home mm. to. Mm. And, of course, the family is still vulnerable. They might be split up. We also, I think, as a contemporary reader, are aware that in 20 years' time, the Great Famine's going mm, to come, yes. and it's people like Mary who suffered, but also yeah. people like Mary who emigrated. So we can kind of get a sense of what's you know being foreshadowed for yeah. her and the and the people like her. Whereas Agnes, I think, was much more alone. Yeah. I think she didn't, you know, she didn't have a family to return to. Yeah, just yeah. even the love, you know, the the emotional support that you get from knowing that there's people there who care for you. Mm. I think she was someone who was betrayed consistently by people in her life and abandoned as well. Her yeah. own mother left her when she was six years old. Her mother probably had to leave her yeah. to get work mm. uh, and left her, you know, in, in what she probably thought was a good family in sort of a foster situation which fell through. But nonetheless, I mean, from Agnes's point of view, I... Certainly the character's point of view. Here I yeah, am sort of conflating yeah. the two. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, she still reads as abandonment, especially after that continually happening to her, to anyone else that draws close to her. Yeah. And more significantly with Nathan, with him essentially emotionally abandoning her mm-hmm. after she goes to mm-hmm. live there. So I don't see them as similar, but I think there are obviously certain factors at play which, you know, makes them equally vulnerable. But yeah. I guess there's a few other things going on that yeah. I think makes her a little bit angrier, especially because she's older as well. She's yeah. gone yeah, through a lot more. Is. Yeah. Mary is only 14 years old yeah. and so she still carries the innocence and perhaps optimism that we associate with youth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I suppose as well, I mean, so the, so in terms of that vulnerability of that sort of outsider nature, mm. the, the other character who does function also as an outsider to this community but in a slightly different mm. way is Nance who is the, the healer woman who very literally lives on the boundaries yeah. of, you know, of the, the actual wild do. place <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the community itself. And, I mean, these are sort of figures that we're always really fascinated yeah. by as well who kind of straddle those kind of peripheries. And she knows a lot, okay, mm-hmm. because she's got the knowledge of the fairy folk but but also just that tradition of herb healing, plant healing. Mm-hmm. So she is a very key character in this way. But that knowledge is a dangerous thing because it it threatens the sort of the religious institutions that are coming into play as well. And so these interactions play out most uh, prominently with the local priest Mm -hmm. who, of course, does not approve of (laughs) Nance's way. So we've got this sort of, I think, this very 
even if this is not intentionally how, how you know you thought about it as an author but I guess I often think about this sort of very masculine mm. institution mm. of the church versus this kind of traditionally very feminine concept of the natural world yeah. mm. and using the natural world as a place f- for knowledge so I don't know if if that was something that you were conscious of you know that kind of masculine feminine divide that plays out yeah, there at all or? it's really interesting I think it, it could be very tempting to gender that difference yes. but I think in the context of Irish folklore, it's important not to, mainly because, you know, um, the the role that Nance plays within her community. And she's someone who's both reviled and sort of held in awe. Um, She's someone who has used her own eccentricity and vulnerability to sort of gain agency. And yeah. that was something that I yeah. really wanted to explore in, in yes. writing the book. Yes. It's all the way, my way into the narrative was through Nance and my desire yeah. to look at the ways in which folklore could provide agency for people who are completely disempowered. Yeah. So I think perhaps in other cultures, particularly that might be the case, that dislocation that inevitably came about between sort of the folklore and that sort of supernatural belief system and then the other belief system. However, like I say, in Ireland at this time, uh, folklore and this this role of the of the fairy doctor as they were often called was often fulfilled by men as well mm. however they were similarly marginalized mm-hmm. they lived in an oral culture not a written one um, mm. they didn't have you know they were frequently illiterate they were frequently poor frequently sort of eccentric and the other thing to keep in mind as well is that the time in which this story sort of unfolds is a crucial one because prior to this there wasn't a dislocation between catholicism yeah. and the practice of folk, what we yeah. would recognize as folkloric sort of belief systems they were one and the same yeah. Yeah. you know origin stories yeah. of the fairies were always involved priests priests would you know pray over changelings it was yes. it was exactly identical but what you did have at the beginning of the 19th century and perhaps even a little bit before that was you had the sort of the rise of urban centres and the rise of literacy, the rise of the middle class, mm-hmm. the rise of sort of certain professions, whereas in the country things more or less were as they had mm-hmm. been. So suddenly you had these huge differences. And this is something that I also wanted to explore. Nance is someone who belongs to that country way of living. Like I said, an oral culture where religion and fairies are one and the same. It's all mixed up in between, but when she's sort of thrust into that modern world represented by the cities where you have people with money who are, who are literate, you have the, the sort of the Catholic emancipation, people are trying to, you know, reinstate Catholics as representatives in Parliament, all of this sort of agitation going on and a desire also to rid the image of Catholics as being superstitious, yeah. Yeah. something which people used as a means to sort yes. of hold them down. Like, look at these crazy Catholics, mm. we can't give them any say. Yep. So that's what happens where suddenly her world starts to crumble because it's, it's a world that is crumbling away. Mm. But like I say... I, it's tempting because obviously priests were male and she is a female practitioner to see it as gendered. I think within the context of this specific story, yeah, it's very easy to do that, but I don't necessarily think within Irish culture that that's something mm-hmm. that, are, that can be yeah. broadly applied. To but be you honest. do show that as well because the priest who has been in this village, in this community previous to this, yeah. did, did support yep. Nance. Yeah. So it's actually, it's very distinct that the new priest who comes in is a, is a town priest. Mm. He's come from the town. Yeah. So it actually does sort of show that that difference. I hope so. I hope so. I think there's certain elements which I think make it slightly different. I mean, one of the books that really informed my writing of this novel was The Burning of Bridget Cleary by Angela Burke, which is a non-fiction book about a similar case of someone being seen as a changeling and mm. remedies to sort of banish the changeling. In this case, the changeling was Bridget Cleary, who I think yep. was 26 years 
years old. Oh. And um, she was banished That's... by her male relatives, huh. including a male fairy doctor. It's an amazing book. I recommend anyone to yeah, get it. Right. <laughs> getting that. It's so well written as well and gives a fantastic, really, overview of the ambiguity of, of folk belief and the ways in which it stood in as another kind of language to address taboo and sort of perform a societal function. I'd read that and I think that stopped me. I think I would have naturally sort of gone down the line of this is the feminine world, mm-hmm. it's the natural yeah. world. Uh-huh. But yeah. having read that book, I was aware yeah. that it was perhaps more stereotype than truth. Yeah. So I wanted that's, to... I mean, that's a very kind of, I guess, traditional structure that's, yeah. seen, that's broadly applied yes. in a lot of kind of Western contexts is yeah. that, mm-hmm. that binary division between yeah. the masculine culture... Yeah rationality the feminine nature irrationality for lack of a better word or superstition perhaps yeah i'm interested in you mentioned that the folklore acted as a way of providing nats with agency yes how did that work for you and what were you wanting to bring out with that because i think that the idea of agency and i imagine that in this historical context the class structures and the people's available like financial kind of stability yeah. is probably more than the gender that's kind of playing a role in how yeah. vulnerable people are. Definitely. So is that playing into that element of agency that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, I mentioned earlier that other men would, would like that other people, including men, would be fairy doctors. But what was generally uniform amongst people who came to fulfill this sort of liminal position in society was that they were otherwise very poor, very vulnerable, and often already really eccentric. And what often happened was instead of their eccentricity being sort of another reason that they were further forced out to the margins, they kind of capitalised mm. on everything that made them vulnerable, including their eccentricity or, you know, physical deformities, yeah. Um, yeah. disabilities, what we would recognise as disabilities now. And they used that as evidence that they had been touched by the fairies and had the knowledge. So it was the one way that we could essentially shift, like I said, everything that made them vulnerable, that everything that could potentially make them an outcast in these societies and used it as evidence of of authority, of authority with the supernatural world that people at that time completely respected so mm. they wouldn't necessarily be admitted back into the society but there was a role there for them yeah. and yes it was on the margins but they had agency in that people would go to them they would never be paid for their services because they would lose the knowledge they would yeah. lose the gift but they would be given you know the food um it's turf, gifts, fuel. Isn't it? yeah it's... absolutely <laughs> they were able to to make a living and they were also able to have respect and a certain yeah. amount of dignity mm. as well well actually because there was a quote that i took out that uh, speaks exactly to that. Uh, one of the um, characters from Nance's sort of previous life before she comes to this valley, uh, Maggie, who tells her that some folk are forced to the edges by their difference, but tis at the edges that they find their power. Yeah. And that's precisely what we're talking about. And, I mean, I pulled that quote out because I think it speaks precisely to that idea of of finding some kind of agency in the difference, yeah. finding a way to to set yourself up that you can actually, you know, make it, work yeah. and find a role and a function in society. So I think that that kind of, mm. that quote perfectly yeah. encapsulates that. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's kind of, you know, an easier way to summarise what I've just been <laughs> <on there. laughs> But so we've also got Nora as well, who, as I said, has sort of been an upstanding member of the community, basically. Mm-hmm. But then she's pushed to the extremes by the circumstances that she finds herself in. And she kind of has a fall from grace almost in mm. a way, whereas the other women who are who part of her life are sort of already a, a bit further down that yeah. food chain a bit, I suppose. Can you tell us a little bit about Nora and about how her role in this community would have mm. been seen? 
Yeah, so Nora is a sort of a, a member of the established community, I suppose we could say. She has a husband, she's had children who have moved away and married and had children of their own. And, you know, she's not wealthy by any means. Um, they're still essentially, you know, renting. And we know the history of Irish rack renting. They're still essentially vulnerable people. And we're talking about the peasant classes again. I use sort of, you know, scare quotes around that. Yeah. But um, but nonetheless, she's much better off. She's not, she's not vulnerable. She's not at risk of being socially outcast, yes. I suppose we can say, as the main difference. However, she then suffers the misfortune of her daughter passing away, mm. as was not uncommon. Through They don't really know exactly what happened, but she was then responsible for the care of her daughter's son, Michal. And this was this was usual. If Even though her daughter's husband survives, he doesn't become the carer of that child. Yeah. It always went back to the wife's family, particularly because it's seen as, I guess, a woman's role to look yeah. after mm. children. And Nora is, I guess, troubled by this young boy, Michal, because she saw him. She went and visited, and when he was about two years old, and he seemed to be talking and developing, as you would expect. And by the time he comes to her to be looked after and cared for, he can no longer walk, he can no longer talk. He's altogether, I think, described as, as crippled. Yeah. Um, but no one really knows exactly what's going on. But because it's sort of linked, because her daughter died and she was a young woman, she died, she passed away, that was seen as perhaps a indication of supernatural influence. Mm. And people read the boy's what we, we, again, as modern readers would perceive as disability. They read into his disability evidence of supernatural interference too. And this brings Nora, I guess, at risk of the judgment of other people yeah. because these things never happened just willy-nilly. Of course yeah. they always did, but people would engaged in a lot of folkloric rituals as a way to sort of prevent this from yeah. ever happening to them. And it's attributing meaning of yeah, course, to things. Significance. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So people are attributing a special significance yeah. and they're looking to Nora and her family as what did they do to bring this down mm. upon themselves. So she's already aware of the gaze of the community on her. And then her um, husband passes away. This happens at the beginning of the novel, so it's not getting yeah. yeah. away. It's like the first... <laughs> it's the yeah. first Hey, like first <laughs> yeah. And so she suddenly finds herself again reduced once more because she doesn't have a man who's going to supply the income that they need yeah. to pay rent. So she, financially, so she's immediately vulnerable. But also she is a woman in grief. And with Nora, I really wanted to study the ways in which her behaviour changes and that she previously perceived herself to be a good person but maybe she was mm. only good because life made it really easy for her to mm. be so. And so she sort of is someone who's dealing with a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a sense of betrayal, I think, by the loss of her family, and at the same time is thrust into a situation where she's having to care for a boy who everyone is saying isn't actually her grandson at all, but a fairy, a replacement, yeah. a stock. Mm. And so it is that combination of grief and a desire to be, I guess, independent and to not have the burden that leads her to suddenly pursue folkloric belief that previously she would have been aware that existed but didn't need to sort of touch because yeah. she had everything that she needed. So she's a woman made desperate, basically. Yeah. So this kind of ties into, I guess, a lot of the scene setting that reveal the, for both in the good people and in burial rites, like what the circumstances around these mm. women were. Because, of course, then we get into the issue of criminality, yes. which is really at the core of both of these novels. And we've touched on how they might have been seen as outsiders mm -hmm. or in vulnerable um, and disempowered positions in life. But I suppose the question is, well, some would argue, I suppose, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you should conduct criminal no. acts. No. It doesn't <laughs> just, necessarily uh, yeah. justify your actions. But is it also, and I, I suppose we can also ask if it becomes 
somehow almost inevitable mm. that these kinds of things might happen. And I think particularly in the good people, it's not so much of a, a conscious where we're sending out to commit a crime no, kind of no. criminality. It's sort of an, a snowball effect of yeah. fate and chance. And, of course, their actions do significantly. And we won't give away what happens, mm. but it does lead to a, a criminal trial. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a perfect storm, like you say. Mm. I think... So with the case of Nora, she's someone who has suffered a great deal of loss. She's left looking after this child who is further forcing her to the margins of the society that would otherwise support her in a position as a widow, as a respectable widow. So she has a need to address that. And she also... If this child is a changeling, it means that her grandson is out there somewhere and will be restored to her. So she has the option of not being entirely alone, but actually being able to get her grandson to live with her. So she's someone who is, um, she's also pursued other avenues of help and Mm. been rejected. She's, when her husband was alive, they got a doctor in to see the boy, something which would have been hugely expensive, Mm. almost prohibitively so Mm. back then. And he did nothing but take take their money and basically said he's ill-thriven, which is something they Mm. called children back then. She goes to the new priest who refuses point blank to practice anything Mm. which is remotely sort of outside, you know, his very formal religious sort of duties that he perceives, you know, he's there to fulfil. So he doesn't offer any assistance. And it's only really as a last resort and at the urging of other people that she sees Nats. And, and really goes to see what Nance will say. Nance, on the other hand, is in a situation where she's had this position, she's been able to live quite comfortably, if not, you know, she's still very poor, but nonetheless she's been able to live with dignity and um, without suffering within this community. And then you have the arrival of the new priest who is of that urban literate society and who perceives her as a threat, whereas previously she would have seen her role with the priest as a partnership. And he, he basically threatens her and says, you need to stop practicing all of these things, you know, keening at funerals, encouraging the dancing of crossroads, all of the stuff they wanted to eradicate from Irish culture. He wants to, he's happy for her to stay, but she can't practice. But of course, she knows that if she doesn't practice, she doesn't have a role in the community. She'll basically die. (laughs) She'll starve. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, you know, the priest has power too. So people are listening to the priest. And when he's preaching against her, they refuse, they start doubting her belief, uh, her powers rather, and they refuse to come to her. So her livelihood is threatened. So it becomes even more important for her to be able to prove to the community that she has this ability. So when Nora and Nance kind of come together and Mary, to a certain degree, is sort of a hapless witness to Yeah, it she's sort of dragged along. Yeah. <laughs> Things intensify. I remember pitching this book really badly to my publisher <laughs> way before I even thought through any sort of narrative. And I described it as, you know, it's a community, it's a bunch of strings wound around everyone and slowly they tighten. Yeah. She was like, okay. <laughs> but I still think to a certain degree that's, that's how kind I of see like it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all of these sort of factors that conspire to create, you know, a situation which is which is desperate yeah and while of course I don't condone the actions of anyone in the novel I hope anyway that readers can see that the characters feel they have no other choice yes and I feel that's also perhaps true in burial rites yeah and I think well I was just gonna say because like you said really their belief is that the grandson is still out there really in with the good people and it's their responsibility to return him Mm. so really it's acting out of this you know place of deep love and protection for the grandson exactly (laughs) but then you also know and there's been lots which has been documented about you know fairy talk speaking of the fairies and fairy belief was this kind of way that people could you know ensure that they weren't blamed for anything Mm. for instance if you know um, there's lots of documented cases where people believed that new mothers 
were at risk of being swept by the fairies. Mm-hmm. And people now read this as a way in which they could talk around essentially postnatal depression. Yeah. You know, yeah. the women are no longer themselves. They're yeah. no longer here with us. They're with the fairies. They might be brought back. Yeah. yeah. But also if they weren't, then that was a way to not necessarily blame the women who you know were suffering so yeah it's so when these things do happen when these terrible tragedies do happen yes on one hand you can see it as just blind faith but on the other you can perhaps see it as this very ambiguous action which speaks both to fairy belief but also to the very real practicalities of what it takes to survive in these communities Mm. so let's come back to agnes because you also mentioned that agnes can also be seen as this being inevitable or, or really that she's perhaps not yes to blame for what happened, we probably can give away a little bit because yeah. we know that she's on. Yeah, yeah. We know that she's convicted of a crime. Yeah. yeah. So here's what I've spent a lot of time thinking about with your depiction of Agnes: is I suppose I wonder about your process mm. of representation of this woman who's. I suppose her guilt is there in the historical record in the sense that she's been convicted, mm-hmm. but there are many different degrees of what guilt can and does mean and all of those other issues that conspiring and perhaps again this idea of this perfect storm Mm -hmm. kind of situation yeah so what (laughs) yeah look it's it's really interesting really interesting because we only have so you know i only had so much to go on and to this day people are still arguing in iceland about Mm. whether or not they were guilty or innocent or what exactly happened was it in self-defense so agnes was convicted of the murder of two men they were stabbed to death while they were slept um with a hammer and a knife bashed basically and then the turf farm was set on fire in an attempt as perceived by the authorities to hide the fact that these men had been murdered they were discovered when agnes ran to a neighboring farm which was some distance away on the peninsula and on the night i think of march 13th and said you know the farm's burning down it's spread from the kitchen you've got to come help by the time they got there it was early morning and the men were found dead but on closer inspection they found you know stab wounds and blood on clothing and all these things which led to an investigation I also know that the testimonies of Sigga, the other servant maid at the house, and Agnes were different. Mm. And so someone lied. And I think it probably was Agnes. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's also, there's all sorts of things which are now and kind of facts about the crime which were known. When I came to write this story, I wasn't actually interested in finding her to be innocent in a, in a mm-hmm. criminal mm-hmm. sense. In yeah. the sense of, you know, she didn't do it. She was a victim. Yeah. Um, because the, that's already happened. There was a film in, made in 1995 by Balthazar Kormacher, who's still practicing today, who's now very famous, called Agnes. Right. And in this film, Agnes is raped by Natan and by other people as well. So she's very much the victim of sexual abuse. She's incredibly vulnerable. She's a mother, which I found really interesting because oh. suddenly she's so much more sympathetic yes and she didn't have any role in the in the murder she was completely framed and, and didn't, was completely rendered voiceless and so is utterly a victim mm-hmm. i wasn't interested in portraying her yeah. as a victim yeah. as you know because you're essentially perpetrating the same myth that yes well that's right yeah, exactly or exactly. exactly. they're angels yeah that's yeah. exactly yeah. right you can't be somewhere in the middle you yeah. can't exactly you know so yeah. it went so far in the other direction and really interestingly i've since met the actress who played Agnes in that film, Maria Ellingson, she came to the launch of Burial Rats in Iceland. (laughs) And she was really interesting for a couple of reasons, one of which I probably don't have time to go into, which is all about, you know, feeling the presence of these historical figures very close and drawing on it as part of the creative process. But she admitted to me that she had hoped that it would be a more ambiguous portrayal. Um, And then, you know, for various reasons it wasn't. So that had already happened. So I wasn't interested in portraying her as innocent because I found that just as deeply unsatisfying as I did the representation of her as unequivocally evil. So what I wanted to do was really look at those external circumstances and, and sort of 
present her life in such a way. I guess a bunch of things. I wanted to show the way in which the society perceived her at the time, that they did deem her sort of evil and completely wicked and, and offered her very little empathy, but then contrast that with her own self-perception. You know, none of us think of ourselves as wicked. And so she has this rich interior life and I wanted to have that there with, you know, the use of a first-person voice, for instance. And obviously examine the relationships, which is something that we've spoken about. But I also wanted to look at, to use the facts, to use what is known about that night at the farm when the men died and to show that she was involved but not in the way that people might anticipate. Mm-hmm. There are a few things which inform my representation of that particular scene because, again, without going into it in mm. great detail, it was a really clumsy crime. You know, it was yeah. really, really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it was considered to be very much a premeditated act but there were so many things which spoke to haste. Yes, yes. Um, absolutely. Including, you know, the fact that they couldn't get their story straight yeah. and that it was done on a night which was very damp, you know, if you want to burn down a farm, you would yeah. make Don't do it in the rain. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so things like that. And the, the manner in which they were killed, you know, these were people who were accustomed to killing animals. There's one thing, if you could yeah. very easily dispatch someone who is sleeping, not sort of wildly stab them. Bashing them yeah. with a including an, including an innocent bystander, you yes. know. So what happened there? These men were also sleeping in the same bed, which was something that was just a common practice. Mm. You know, bread's... There were more people than there were beds. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, you wonder whether something happened in the dark. You just don't know. And there is so much evidence, both local legend, written down personal anecdote, just a general understanding, formal reports by priests that Agnes and Friedrich were both very intelligent people. Yeah. In fact, people spoke about how intelligent they were as a way to almost cement their guilt. Yeah. Particularly in the case of Agnes. Because they were premeditated, yeah. cunning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She yeah. was really knowing. She was very intelligent. She was known as having quite a sharp tongue. People said that she made friends easily but then lost them, I think, probably uh. because of that. But she was a poet. She was a very well-regarded poet. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And so, is this in contrast to Sigur as well? Because Sigur is yeah. sort of represented as being perhaps more of the figure who may have just dumbly gone along with. Yeah, so Sigrid was really young. She was only about 16 years old. Mm. And it was believed that she had had a affair also with Natan. We wonder how consensual that was. Yeah. Mm. But also she had been made sort of essentially housekeeper over Agnes. And that was something which was glossed over a lot in these accounts. It was so much was made of this sort of love affair yeah. that Agnes did this out of, you know, scorned woman. Basically, yeah. Right. But in, I think it's really significant that she, here she was promised a position of a, certainly more so, you know, social power. And it was suddenly given yeah. to a woman mm. half her age with half as much experience as yeah. she did. In a way that was probably quite intentionally meant to embarrass her. Yeah. Anyway, but Sigur was this person who was, you know, quite beautiful, but everyone, again, spoke of how dumb she was. And so, you know, whether that was true or not, but people perceived her as not really having much numbing, as probably being very passive. And they read into that passivity, uh, I guess, more Agnes's guilt, that this was a woman who had been forced into participating through the two other more knowing, more intelligent people. Um, more experienced people. It's really, really interesting because there persists in Iceland to this day a story that Sigurd was originally condemned to death, but her death sentence was overturned and reduced to life imprisonment, which she couldn't serve in Iceland because there weren't the facilities. So she was sent to Copenhagen, and it was believed there that the 
there was some sort of prince or some royal figure or noble who petitioned <laughs> on her behalf to re- to get her out of jail and that she was released and that they married and she had this amazing life, you know, in amongst sort of Copenhagen nobility. Yeah. That didn't happen. She died, <laughs> she died in prison. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 She died working in a textile prison. Mm. However, the fact that that myth has continued all mm. these years kind of shows the public sympathy and their desire for her to be pardoned and sort yeah. of, you know, rescued, I guess. Yeah. By the prince. By the prince. Yeah. Yeah, no, le- no less. So this was something that I found really, really interesting and I wanted to sort of pursue. But, yeah, so my rep- to sort of bring it back, my representation of that particular night was very much informed by the fact of what I saw as inconsistencies between mm. the various multi- But you also present multiple versions mm. of events in, in a way because you've got the district commissioner who kind of presents his version of the narrative, which is that he believes that Agnes is the kind of mastermind yeah. in this murder, mm-hmm. you know. But then there's also, of course... Agnes opening up to Margaret and telling her and Toshi and telling her side of the story yeah. in a more sympathetic light. But also I suppose we understand perhaps issues around unreliable exactly narrating right. and Yeah. It was important know. for me for her when it came to telling that part of the story of what had happened, that she's telling it. It's not that yes. sort of, you know, introspective rumination that we yeah. have elsewhere. And hopefully there's already other evidence that what she says and what she thinks can be slightly different. Yeah. So I wanted there to keep open the possibility that maybe she was more implicated than she's and even she's willing to admit to herself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think because the exercise in writing that book was never to, she's innocent, she didn't yeah. do it. It yeah. was much more about, uh, yeah, maybe she did do it, but she's still a human and there were probably other factors in play. Exactly. Yeah. I think. I mean, that's very much in line with what we are doing with <laughs> yeah, this, whole, right. yeah, <laughs> this exactly. whole project is about exploring the, the fact that this is not a black and white women and yeah. not monsters and angels and that usually... There's a lot of grief. They're in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this separation between personhood and behaviour and actions. Yes. Yeah. You know, whether or not the sum of our actions, as much as society often likes to read us as being so. Mm. Yeah. Interesting stuff, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we could probably keep talking. I mean, I could unpack these women probably for days, but <laughs> we could go oh. on. We don't have the time, no. unfortunately. And Hannah also has to get back to her life. Yeah. <laughs> And a baby. More and deviant well. women to research. <laughs> wow, yeah. I mean, are there any more deviant women in your... Yeah, in your... yeah you could say so. I'm, I'm doing the adaptation of The Good People at the moment, which is really interesting because things have to change when you don't have the luxury of a character's interior life, like, yes. which is so much of The Good People. Yeah. So that's really interesting because I think that's going to change the conversation about guilt and innocence and all these sorts Ooh. of things. The film's going to be completely different, but I'm doing that at the moment. But, yeah, in terms of new books... Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, they could be deviant. Yeah. I mean, are these the kinds of characters that you're drawn to because you like this ambiguity? Certainly in the case of Agnes, yeah. yeah. I didn't necessarily go out thinking, mm, I want to write a book about a woman's ambiguity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I heard this Did story. Did you? Really? I think that. I spent all my time thinking, oh, I'm writing. No. No, it was very much just hearing about this one and then my own personal frustrations when I couldn't find, when she was either completely absent from the record or only there as, you know, a stereotypical yeah. sort of puppet. And then the and the good people came about when I was researching mm. um, burial rights. So that seemed quite organic. And in terms of this next project, which I'm being so hush-hush about, <laughs> it's something different again. I want to just kind of go somewhere a bit lighter and it's the setting and the sort of the background or events are drawn from real life but these women and again two women yeah. but um much more fictional 
Yeah. Oh, but, wow. but yeah, not exactly conforming to society's expectations. There's Good. no there's no conflict in that. No, no novelist is interested in that. <laughs> we aren't. No. <laughs> fabulous. I'm very excited about seeing where that goes. And, and two films. Two on films. Yeah. Not just the good people, Ooh, but of yeah. course burial rights as well will be mm-hmm. coming out sometime. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. So they've announced the director, which is really exciting, and some of the other people involved. And then I think I know from my Icelandic friends that they said there's been location scouts. So oh. fingers crossed, fingers crossed it all goes ahead. But, you exactly. know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. <laughs> I like that idea of just you just getting these messages back from people like, there are strange people with cameras. Yeah. <laughs> Scouting out. You know, Iceland's still a very small place. So I do hear reports <laughs> yeah. like the grapevine is still very much in <laughs> operation. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, our listeners, as well, for coming along today as well. And if you like the podcast, there are a few different ways that you can support us. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at DeviantWomen, and that's the same on Facebook and Instagram as well. And, of course, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud. So subscribe and leave us a review. If you really want to show your love, then you can find us on Patreon, where you can get all sorts of extra bonus content. And, of course, if you want to, you can buy Deviant Women merchandise. You can find us on Etsy. So that's all for us. So big thank you to Hannah for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.